Welcome to Thriving Entrepreneur with your host, Steve Kidd, third-generation minister and 30-year business coach. Listen in as amazing, world-changing authors, speakers, and coaches share their struggles and victories, and hear from best-selling authors' insight into how you, too, can live your life as a thriving entrepreneur. This is Steve. Welcome to Thriving Entrepreneur. Thanks for being with me here today as we talk about you. We talk about knowing yourself, about being the best you that you can be. What does it take to be the best version of you? Thanks for joining me. I'm so grateful for our time that we get to be here together, for all the time that we get to be able to spend to talk about you, about living, thriving, and being the person that you were always meant to be, to thrive in your life and business. What does it mean to be the best version of yourself? How do you get there? The first thing most definitely is you must know yourself. You need to know who you are, what purpose you serve in this world. Uh, you know, you need to really be emotionally intelligent enough to understand your place in the world as well as the place that others that are in your world serve in your world. What are the things that are your skill sets? What are the skills you need to learn to be able to do it? And when you've reached a level of success, just simply being you, how can you take those things and continue to grow? Maybe you're in transition to another business. Maybe you're looking for a new thing, something different, something better, something cooler, whatever. How do you know what to do? What are the things that you need to know? And that starts by knowing yourself so that you can be the best version of you while it's called today. You can do more, be more, see more, and succeed more because you know yourself. That knowing of ourself, that really truly being the best version of you is something so powerful, so amazing, and something so needed when we're talking about living as a thriving entrepreneur. So I've got three really great guests that are going to jump into that with us. They're going to talk about three different aspects, both from what they did personally, um, as well as how to be emotionally intelligent, and of course, things that you can learn, skills, negotiating skills even, so that you can be in the best place to serve not only those that you're meant to serve, but also to take the best care of yourself. How can you now today know yourself and be the best you that you can be? Let's talk about that as we jump right into it here on Thriving Entrepreneur. Here we go with our very first guest. Join me in welcoming Phil Johnson. Hey, Phil, how are you doing today? Uh, great, Steve. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Yeah, glad to have you here with me. Tell us a little bit about you and how you show up in the world. Um, I'm 68 years old and I've been an executive coach uh, working with ex executives and organizations all over the world for the last 21 years. Prior to that, I was uh, an executive in the semiconductor industry. I spent seven, 20 years in the uh, in the semiconductor industry. What kind of things do you help people with when you're doing coaching? I help them to uh, get better results by developing their emotional intelligence, raising their level of awareness and becoming more inspirational leaders. So that's a, that's a way of saying I help them with uh, their career and uh, personal success. So for a person who doesn't know what emotional intelligence is, can you give us a simple definition for that? Sure. Simply, it's the ability to feel the, the anxiety that change always creates in us and move through it towards what it is we're trying to achieve, as opposed to allowing that anxiety to keep us trapped in our comfort zone. 
that process, uh, what I call emotional labor of going through that process is what develops our emotional intelligence, helps us to become more inspirational leaders and raises our, our awareness of what's going on in us and around us. Why is it that so many people struggle with emotional intelligence so much? Because it's harder than hell to do. It's harder than hell to develop. Um, there are significant both biological and sociological resistance to change. And we need to, uh, we need to be willing to change in order to develop our emotional intelligence. Um, so, and by the way, our educational system has failed us and our employment system has failed us. They've failed to prepare us for the, for the tsunami of change uh, we face in this century. Um, think of, uh, nobody would ever go to a dentist unless they were either in pain or trying to avoid pain. And uh, few people would be willing to do the emotional labor that the development of emotional intelligence requires um, unless they are either in pain or following their passion. Those are the only two sources of motivation that will cause us to leave our comfort zone. So when we get uncomfortable enough, then we go looking for a, a solution is basically. Yep. Is there a way to manufacture that discomfort without having to have to go through some of the traumas some people have had to go through in order to be able to start taking that step? Uh, yeah, the way I do it is I, um, I ask people what they want. And when somebody tells you what they want, they're also telling you what they don't have. And the bigger the gap between where they are versus where they want to be, the more motivated they are to look for a solution to close that gap. And really without that motivation, uh, change is impossible. So without that urgent desire for better results, you may want better results, but you won't be willing to do the emotional labor that uh, obtaining better results requires. And as a matter of fact, most people aren't willing to do the emotional labor. So what they do instead is they often try and use position-based power to control and manipulate others to get them to change because they're unwilling to change. And that's why the current level of employee engagement, according to Gallup, is around 13%. Wow, that is so low. And I wonder honestly if that's really even actually high in comparison to some of the people I've dealt with. Sure, when you take a look around, um, and by the way, uh, there's, there's something I'd like to say here at the outset, and uh, please feel free to challenge me or have your listeners challenge me, but um, I guarantee, underlying guarantee, the development of emotional intelligence will enable people to uh, succeed both in their career and in their personal life. Um, and I've been proving that I've generated over a billion and a half dollars in revenue um, in helping organizations and clients um, get remarkable results by developing their emotional intelligence. And I've, been, I've proven over the last 21 years that there's an underlying energy physics to all of this that makes... Um, the results of developing your emotional intelligence as predictable and quantifiable as any physical science. So in other words, you can't do the work that developing your emotional intelligence requires and not succeed both in your career and in your personal life. It's impossible. So can you give us an example of a direct correlation between developing emotional intelligence and it actually making a person money? Sure. Uh, how about I give you an example of a company that's doing over a trillion dollars a year in revenue, uh, whose primary focus 
is on um, hiring people with above average levels of, of emotional intelligence. Would that work? Absolutely. Okay. That company is Apple. Apple's primary hiring focus is to look for people with above average levels of emotional intelligence. And that energy you feel when you go into an Apple store is an example of a more emotionally intelligent environment. They're not trying to sell you anything. Uh, they want you to have a great experience. They wanna try and help you with, that, with whatever your pain is, whether you buy anything or not is secondary to, uh, to trying to serve you. And maybe you'll go tell your friends and they'll tell their friends. So the energy you feel being in an Apple store is quite a bit different than the energy you feel in the surrounding stores. And that's, that's an example of, a, of how the development of emotional intelligence translates directly into building trust and higher levels of revenue generation. Okay, cool. So, I mean, let's look at the other side of it. What happens to companies when they just dig in their heels and choose not to? Look out your window. Um, we're living in an increasingly toxic environment where the accelerating rate of global change is creating unprecedented levels of drama, chaos, and conflict everywhere in the world. And that's going to continue until we're in enough pain to begin the challenging process of developing our emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence isn't a solution to the tsunami of change we're facing. It is the only solution. Some scientists estimate that in this century, we could experience roughly the equivalent of 20,000 years worth of change. So change is increasing at an exponential rate. And we've got a 500 million year old brain that doesn't like change. So the develop, think of, um, let me just give you an example of one of the, uh, one of the barriers we have to change. Um, there's a part of our old lizard brain called the amygdala. And whenever it sees us trying to leave our comfort zone, whenever we take an action that moves us outside of our comfort zone, it secretes a hormone into our bloodstream called cortisol. And that causes the executive center of our brain, our prefrontal cortex to shut off. And we go into what psychologists refer to as an amygdala hijack, uh, fight, flight, or freeze mode. Some people lash out, some people freeze, um, some people run away. When that happens in conflict situations, often people die. And when it happens in business or personal situations, relationships die, we burn trust. So as an analogy, if you think of your amygdala as a very frightened four-year-old child, the development of our emotional intelligence acts like a big brother or a big sister to quiet the amygdala response down and better enable us to feel the fear and anxiety that changing innovation always creates in us and move through it towards the vision of our desired results as opposed to allowing that anxiety to keep us trapped in our comfort zone. So I know there's a ton of stuff in it, but what could, what's one thing that a person could do right now that would begin to up their level of emotional intelligence? A real easy one um, is focus on your breathing. Because when you focus on your breathing, just simply close your eyes and take a, take a slow, deep breath in through your nostrils and blow it out slowly through your mouth. And simply by doing that, it stops you from thinking. And that allows you to be more present in this moment. It allows you to lower your walls. You become less resistive, less judgmental, less attached to outcome. So that's a, uh, that's a way of connecting with who you really are, as opposed to who you think you are. Mm, I love that. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of people, a lot of companies that need to bring you in and have you help them learn how to do this. Um, how, 
Well, first of all, who do you like working with and, and how would they get in contact with you? Executives with an urgent desire for better results. Um, and the best way to reach me is through my LinkedIn profile. Um, they can send me a message or they can jump on my uh, Zoom calendar and we can have a face-to-face -face discussion. Can you give us that URL one more time? i uh, give you the which? The URL. Uh, my LinkedIn profile. Yeah, your LinkedIn profile. Uh, give me a second. I'll pull it up. So they can just look up Phil Johnson on LinkedIn and, and find Sure, you. it's uh, linkedin.com forward slash IN forward slash Philip J.P. Johnson. Perfect. Philip I appreciate with, that. Philip with one L. I'll put it in the... Um, I'll put it in the chat box as well. Perfect, love that. Yeah. So Phil, give us, um, give us some words of encouragement for really taking the leap and developing our emotional intelligence starting right now today. Develop a, um, start to develop an emotional connection with something that you want to achieve because that emotional connection, that vision of a desired result, something you wanna achieve or something you wanna correct, some way you wanna be of service, has to create the motivation that will move you out of your comfort zone. Because without the vision you have of your desired results you wanna achieve has to be stronger than the fear that will be generated when you leave your comfort zone to try and pursue that vision. So the first step is always um, get connected with something you want to achieve that motivates you to take action and begin moving in that direction. Perfect, love that. Well, Phil, thanks so much for spending some time with us here on the show today. My pleasure, Steve, it's uh, great being on your show. The best and worst part of emotional intelligence is when a person has it, it makes them show up in the world better in everything that they do. And when they don't have it, it just seems like, feels like, and probably truly is, that they never really quite show up at all. I hope that you not only are living a life of emotional intelligence, but that you are using it to be the best you that you can be in this world. Let's take our first quick commercial break here on Thriving Entrepreneur, and then we'll be right back. If you're an author who's on a mission, stand out with your brand out. <laughs> Check this out, guys. Yep, everything's marketing, and marketing is everything. Your existing book can become a best-selling book, or even, hey, like mine, a number one international best-selling book in five days. Listen, if your business isn't known by everybody, it's obscurity, and that's death, right? The same thing is true for your book. If you're not happy with the way your book is performing, you got that far, and then it just fell off the face of the planet, kind of feeling go to yourbestsellertoday.com schedule a talk with steve it's risk-free it's guaranteed it's proven we've done it thousands of times what are you waiting for yes yourbestsellertoday.com this time next week you could have a beautiful seal on your book and get the attention that you deserve reach the people that you came to serve come on now what are you waiting for grab a pen here we go all you got to do is book a call yourbestsellertoday.com go to yourbestsellertoday.com Book a talk with Steve. It's proven. It's guaranteed. It's going to happen. All you have to do is say yes to your destiny. Welcome back to Thriving Entrepreneur. This is Steve. Welcome back. Thanks for listening to Thriving Entrepreneur today as we talk about knowing yourself and then with knowing yourself, being the best version of yourself, being the best you that you can be while it's called today. I hope you learned something from our first segment and we've got another great guest that we're going to jump right into now to be able to talk about how we can know ourselves, be the best version of ourselves that we can be and live as a thriving entrepreneur. Let's jump right into it. Join me in welcoming Jotham Stein. Hey Jotham, how are you doing today? 
I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on your show, Steve. Yeah, absolutely. You have a book called Negotiating Like an, a CEO, and I want to definitely talk about that. But first, just tell us a little bit about you and how you show up in the world. Well, my office is in Palo Alto. I live in Half Moon Bay, California, have offices in Chicago and New York, and uh, I represent a lot of entrepreneurs and executives. I've been doing that for more than 25 years, and uh, um, that's how I have a website and and a book, new book, uh, and that's how I show up in the world. So how do we negotiate like a CEO? What does that even mean? Let's start there. Well, the reason the, the book is titled Negotiate Like a CEO is because what do most CEOs do before they take the job as CEO? They, what do they do? They negotiate themselves what I call a professional prenuptial agreement, which is nothing more than a separation or severance agreement negotiated on day one, even before they start. So the CEO is protecting himself or herself from essentially being fired by the board uh, at any time with or without notice or being forced out or asked to leave. And uh, that's the reason that's the title of the book is uh, every employee from the beginning, um, first level employee all the way up to the C-suite, um, if they have any leverage at all, should negotiate their protection from being fired, from being terminated, from being forced out, from being performance improvement, put on a performance improvement plan uh, before even they begin work. For entrepreneurs, uh, entrepreneurs want to protect themselves uh, both in the employment aspect of their job, but also if they are the founders of a company or co-founders of a company, they need to protect themselves against investors or people they're contracting with or businesses they're contracting with so that they don't wind up uh, on the street watching somebody else take over their, their metaphorical baby, their company, and, and lead it without them. So I love the concept. At, are there jobs that you can't? Or, I mean, could you even negotiate that way to you know, say getting a job at McDonald's or something like that. I mean, what, what jobs, if any, can't you negotiate for? I'm sorry, I missed that. Um, a job doing what did you say? Like working at McDonald's or, you know, some other type of entry level job. Are there ones that don't really qualify for, hey, negotiating on, at the very beginning on your way in? It, it depends on context. And so at taking McDonald's, that's a very entry level job. And and you're expecting the answer to be, well, there you really can't negotiate. But in certain circumstances, you might be able to if you have any leverage at all. So for example, uh, in this environment where McDonald's and other companies are looking for employees, there's a lot of uh, signs out there um, you know, uh, with jobs available looking for applications. There you might be able to protect yourself, even though usually you would not, if you have any leverage at all. For example, someone says, listen, I'm not gonna go work at your McDonald's, unless you agree that if you fire me um, without any reason, you pay me a week's of week worth of salary or two weeks worth of salary. So, or, or a, a negotiation, uh, uh, something else that's important to them. Um, and, and it is possible in this environment to do that in certain circumstances. But I will agree with you that there is much more difficult when you're starting out or at entry level positions to negotiate um, like a CEO. And in those circumstances, you have to go in with your eyes wide open. For, and, you know, talking about McDonald's is probably reducing it to the ludicrous, but for somebody starting into a typical entry-level career job at a business, um, I know the fear is if I come in negotiating strong, I just won't get the job. Is that, is that a rational fear or is that something that people really have wrong? Uh, it's hugely rational fear, and that's a fear all the way up to the level of the CEO. Should I ask for X, Y, and Z, and maybe they'll withdraw the offer? I would say that uh, it's certainly in an entry-level job, but almost all the time, not 100% of the time, but almost all the time, one does not ask for protection and try to negotiate it until they have uh, the job in hand. So, uh, but the real concern is, okay, they made me a job offer. Should I just sign on the dotted line and take whatever the risks are? Um, or should I go back and say, I want a little more salary, or I want a little better commission uh, structure, or in this case, I want a little protection 
um, that if you fire me, I get a week or two weeks or a month of severance. Um, that's always a concern. And the risk is always that the company will withdraw the offer. Uh, but sometimes, um, you know, if the company is going to withdraw the offer when you're doing nothing more than what the CEO of the company has probably done, then maybe you don't want to be working there. On the other hand, some people really need that job for themselves or their family, uh, and they won't take the risk um, uh, of, of, of trying to negotiate. They just sign on the dotted line. Uh, but uh, many times, um, what's the, usually what the worst is going to happen is that the company will say no. If you have two job offers at the same time, even at entry level, then you're even in a much better position because you can go to the other job uh, or you can play off one job against the other to get a little protection for yourself. Um, so when you talk about entry-level jobs, it's all context-dependent. Where in the country are we talking about? What entry-level job? In what, um, uh, you know, in, in what um, uh, field is the job? So for example, I take coders, those guys who soft, uh, and women, men and women who, who code software, even though they may be entry-level, just coming out of college, uh, there's a tremendous need for them and companies uh, will often give them things because they, if they ask for it, because they're so needed uh, and the company knows a small amount of protection, um, giving them severance, for example, for a month or two up front is a small price to pay to get a good coder. I just use that as one example of an entry-level job where there's a, currently a lot of leverage for the prospective employee. So we've all seen the TV shows where, you know, say, for example, a guy starts a company, it goes public, and then the board votes him out of his own company. Um, are there dangers that are similar to that for the beginning and mid-tier type of employees that they don't even know to be thinking about or typically don't know? Absolutely, 100%, particularly if those beginning employees or mid-level employees, mid-level managers want someday to, to uh, become um, you know, senior managers and, and run the company and be CEO. So uh, it certainly happens in uh, change of control circumstances when there's an acquirer buying your company. If you're an employee or you're a mid-level manager, you have tremendous risk often because sometimes the acquirer uh, is acquiring things other than the people, the employees that are there. Um, in terms of doing the IPO, um, you would want to protect yourself if you could at all, if you're a, even if you're a mid-level employee, but if you have leverage. So they need you, let's say you're a mid-level engineer or you're um, a mid-level mid in marketing or sales. And what do I mean by protection in that circumstance? If you terminate my employment as an example, using the IPO example, if you terminate my employment at any time without cause, you will accelerate the vesting of my stock, stock options, restricted stock, profits, interest, whatever it is by one year. I use it as an example. That's a one sentence line that can go in an offer letter, a one page or two page offer letter that would protect the mid-level employee um, if they're terminated before or after an IPO or at any time, uh, at least their equity that they worked so hard, they worked so hard for. So in the book, um, do you outline um, you know, the basic things that you would give people advice for if they came into your office enough that they can do it themselves? Or do they really still need to hire somebody like yourself uh, to create their counterproposal letter? Well, the book gives them all the tools. But uh, if you're going into a sophisticated position or any position and you can afford a lawyer, you should get one who knows what's going on, right? My book takes everyone through the, the employment process from an offer letter, an employment agreement, through a change of control agreement, to, to a, if you're stuck on a performance improvement plan, if you're an entrepreneur, you're getting investing, how much investors, how, how do you protect yourself? What do you look out for? But still, it helps to go to the person that's seen it 50 or 100 times before, right? Because then they can be more sensitive and, and underscore what's in the book. And I would say um, the book is giving everybody the tools they need and what to look out for, but you should still go to a professional, particularly if you're an entrepreneur, uh, particularly if you're an executive or any uh, employee that can afford one. I mean, lawyers don't come free and that's, that's a bit of a problem, um, but often uh, it can be the cheapest thing somebody does in their career to go to a lawyer uh, if things go wrong. And, and we all hope that things are gonna go really well. And, and, and often when you go into a new job or in a new investing relationship or you form a new company, you think, you think 
naturally everything's going to work out great. But uh, I'm here to tell you that things work out great a lot of the time, but not all the time. And many people wind up getting fired um, after the IPO the, uh, the same way that you just described about the movie shows, right? You can protect yourself in that case um, in the movies or TV shows, the firing of a, of a CEO, the CEO can protect himself or herself uh, just as other employees can and, and should if they have any leverage. So what if, um, what if a person doesn't take the time to do this? They're like, ah, well, you know, I mean, it's a great job and I just really need the job. Um, you know, what, what do you typically say to people that their response is, gosh, I wish I would have heard this from you before? What, what is the, the big thing that you hear people wishing they had heard from you beforehand? How to protect themselves, what the, how to read the tea leaves, um, how to put something in an offer letter when they had the leverage, uh, which I often tell them after the fact that they did, because I can tell from the fact pattern they did. Um, if they had uh, gone in with their eyes wide open and if they had gone in understanding um, that, you know, companies change, people change, jobs are sold to you that aren't really the job that you, you, you wind up working in. Happens all the time. So that's the things that they are, are uh, often come to me about. Uh, but what I, what I tell them and what I would tell your listeners is not, um, uh, what I tell them, this is water under the bridge, you know, fool me. Um, once shame on you for me twice shame on me because what I tell them really besides that is that you are not alone there are so many successful wonderful happy shrewd uh, uh, very accomplished individuals people men and women who get taken advantage of cheated fired with no notice forced out for no good reason that happens all the time so you're not alone and, um, and if you do things right the next time and look out for yourself the next time, you know, this will hopefully just be a blip in the screen of your life and the trajectory of your life and of your employment. And um, it's very painful to get fired. Um, it is very painful to be forced out. It is very painful to have a passive aggressive uh, boss. It is very painful to know, um, to realize, if you realize that your boss doesn't really want you there, even though you're doing a great job, um, but you can protect yourself in the future and I tell people, you are not alone. There are so many people that have experienced exactly what you've experienced. Um, and, you know, you never expected it. You didn't even know what to ask for, or what to look out for, because that's not what you're good at. You're good at doing your job, not looking out for yourself. And so um, that's a message I hope to tell everybody. So even though it's very painful, um, the, in three months or six months, I often have clients who come to me. Um, and tell them it was the best thing that ever happened to them. They got fired. So you mentioned several cities that you are in. Can you work with pretty much anybody around the country or um, do they need to find somebody local to them? Um, well, we do work with people around the country, but when they're not in the states that we're licensed in, so we're, uh, you know, people at my law firm or myself are licensed in New York and in California. Uh, certainly in Silicon Valley, California, New York, Chicago, Illinois. We have an office in Chicago, uh, licensed in Colorado and the District of Columbia. If we were, so it sort of spans the country, but missing 45 other states, uh, we would associate in, typically associate in local counsel um, or, or make sure that the employee um, gets advice from local counsel, somebody in their jurisdiction. And I use, uh, you know, Texas, for example, we have a lot of uh, entrepreneurs and executives moving from one place or another, usually California to Texas. And, you know, we have um, lawyers there that we work with um, that we can recommend to the um, a client or potential client. Uh, so they get local um, advice on, on labor laws mostly. Uh, and um, so that's the way we sort of work, but we, we represent um, entrepreneurs and executives around the country. Love it. Um, and how can a person get in contact with you? So if you go to the book's website, uh, negotiatelikeaceobook.com, negotiatelikeaceobook.com, you'll not only see a lot of stuff about the book um, and have an introduction to that, there's a contact page that comes up and has my information there and you could contact me um, through that contact page on the website. Well, do definitely get the book, Negotiate Like a CEO. Jocelyn, thanks so much for spending some time with us here on the show today. 
Thanks so much, Steve, for having me on your show and uh, best of luck to you. I hope you will take these skills that you've learned during this segment and you will use it to negotiate like a CEO, to be all that you can be in the place that you are and feel maximized in that place. As you live, you thrive and you be the best you that you can be as you know yourself to be the best you in this world today. Let's take another commercial break and then we'll be right back here on Thriving Entrepreneur. If you're an author who's on a mission, stand out with your brand out. <laughs> Check this out, guys. Yep, everything's marketing and marketing is everything. Your existing book can become a best-selling book or even, hey, like mine, a number one international best-selling book in five days. Listen, if your business isn't known by everybody, it's obscurity and that's death, right? The same thing is true for your book. If you're not happy with the way your book is performing, you got that far and then it just fell off the face of the planet kind of feeling, go to yourbestsellertoday.com. Schedule a talk with Steve. It's risk-free. It's guaranteed. It's proven. We've done it thousands of times. What are you waiting for? Yes, yourbestsellertoday.com. This time next week, you could have a beautiful seal on your book and get the attention that you deserve. Reach the people that you came to serve. Come on now. What are you waiting for? Grab a pen. Here we go. All you got to do is book a call, yourbestsellertoday.com. Go to yourbestsellertoday.com. Book a talk with Steve. It's proven. It's guaranteed. It's going to happen. All you have to do is say yes to your destiny. Welcome back to Thriving Entrepreneur. This is Steve. Welcome back. Thanks for listening to Thriving Entrepreneur today as we talk about knowing yourself and being the best you that you can be. We've already talked about the concept of emotional intelligence and how to negotiate like a CEO. And now I want to kind of bring it down to some practical real world stuff whereby knowing yourself, you can transition to that next thing for you and be able to really show up powerfully in that. Not only is this next guest have some great things that maybe some things you want to add into your own portfolio, but also some really great insight in knowing himself and being the best that he could be so that you too can live your life as a thriving entrepreneur. Let's jump into it. Join me in welcoming Colin Tate. Hey, Colin, how are you doing today? Excellent, Steve. How are you today? I am good, thank you. So tell us a little bit about you and how you show up in the world. Well, Steve, I'm a uh, recovering entrepreneur. So I'm a serial entrepreneur, so to speak. Never had a W-2 job. And I sold a business in uh, 2018. I was 49 at the time and just started thinking, well, what am I going to do next? And I had some successful short-term rental properties. And that's how I got started down the road of short-term rental investing and coaching. Mm, love that. So um, <laughs> I loved how you put that you're, you know, like, it's almost like you're in entrepreneur rehab. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, it gets in the blood. Yeah. So short-term rental investing. Um, explain to me what you mean by that. We're talking about properties being used um, for short stays, vacation rental stays. So something um, specifically, my properties are primarily listed on Airbnb, right? So a place that you wouldn't rent for six months or a year, but a place that you might rent for a long weekend or, or maybe a full week getaway. Okay. Um, you know, we're, depending on the day, kind of out of, uh, you know, out of the pandemic sort of now, um, you know, like you said, depending on the day and who you speak to, <laughs> um, how did uh, COVID affect your business? That's a really good question. Um, the short-term rental business has been growing over the, you know, the past, you know, half a decade, decade, sort of at pace with the whole sharing economy, you know, Airbnb sort of growing like Uber has. Um, but when the pandemic hits, that definitely slowed things down in our market about 60 days, really kind of went real flat, um, but then rose back uh, from the ashes like a phoenix and has just gone from, you know, 
good to phenomenal in terms of demand and occupancy and, and nightly rates. And you say that you're an investor. So are you part of a group of people that buy the house or do you just buy all of them and, and stuff yourself? Yeah, so I have um, nine uh, investment properties that, yeah, that I'm, I'm the, the sole owner with, the, with bank assistance. All right, so my next question, and you'll forgive me a lot of the times for the interview, I just uh, pick your brain for mine. Yeah, let's do it. You know, <laughs> um, are there certain types of rentals that people are looking for or aren't looking for? You know, I think back to that pandemic question, you know, to finish that out a little and people are looking, so many people are working from home now. So many people have spent a lot of time in lockdown. People are looking to sort of get out of their own four walls, um, get somewhere, you know, driving distance, somewhere they can get to without necessarily getting on an airplane, right? Or having to take a lot of tests or jump through a lot of hoops, a place where they can drive through a few hours away that's unique um, and to get out of their own their home and experience something a little different. So if somebody lives in, you know, a less densely populated state, say, oh, I don't know, Tennessee or Oklahoma or, you know, something like that, mm -hmm. um, you know, does that same still apply to them or are they trying to pull in people from the bigger cities? Um, no, absolutely. I People, you know, Tennessee is a great example. You know, you've got Nashville, which is a, you know, hub of blue, you know, big uh, hustle bustle kind of uh, you know, music city. And then you've got the Smoky Mountains right around the corner, right, where people want to go and get away for a weekend. I don't know about Oklahoma quite as much, but I think there's an Oklahoma City, right? So that's a city with a few million people. And those people who live in the city, you know, are, are equally trying to get out, out of their condos and go work somewhere else. It's not just about the weekends anymore. People can work from home and they realize it doesn't have to be their home. Mm, I love that. So one of the things you definitely are looking at then is uh, making sure you have the work accessibility types of um, things in the house, uh, internet access, yeah. probably, you know, maybe even computers, things like that. We've never actually added computers, but I'll tell you, we definitely went around and added more sort of desk space, you know, uh, like a, um, we use these desks that are kind of like almost like a bookshelf where it kind of leans against the wall, but in, they don't take up a lot of room. It can kind of be used as a bookcase or a work surface and, you know, put a, putting those in spare bedrooms so people can get away and take Zoom calls and do a little bit of work while the family, you know, does whatever the family's doing. Mm, I love that. Now I know, well, I think I know. I saw it on TV, so of course you know that means that's I know it, right? Um, <laughs> uh, that pre-pandemic, the real rage in Airbnbs were, you know, kind of interesting destination. Not necessarily that it had to be that long of a drive, but you know, like staying in unusual places and things like that. Is that still the case, or is it really more just, you know, hey, give me a regular house, just not mine? Um, I think there's always room for uniqueness, right? So yeah, Airbnb definitely is known for some of its quirky places, right? You can stay in a TP, you can stay in an Airstream, you can stay on somebody's boat, you know, and that, uh, that, that element still exists. Um, I think people are looking for something in a getaway place that they don't have at home. Right, so that doesn't have to be a teepee. That could be a fireplace. That could be a outdoor fire ring. That could be, you know, some hanging basket chairs or a hot tub or a screened-in porch. Little amenities like that. It doesn't have to be, you know, a major macro shift in something, you know, like you don't have to go out and buy a houseboat. But you know, people are just looking for a little bit of flavor that they don't get at home. So it's more about practical, usable things now rather than kitschy, you know, decorate your whole house as a Star Wars themed house or things like that. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a delicate balance there. Um, you know, heck, if you had a if, if you had a Star Wars house, it's going to do well. But uh, we really try to focus on, um, you know, some unique, you know, we have a tree fort in the backyard of one of our, our, our cabins. And we put little, you know, we're talking about teepees, we'll put like little teepees in the kids' bedrooms and lots of games and toys and 
um, you know, just activities that allow the family to spend a little bit of time together, maybe in a different way than they would have uh, in, at their own home. And are your places spread out around the United States or are you in a particular area? Um, the majority of my properties are in the um, Blue Ridge Mountains um, in Shenandoah Valley, uh, Virginia. But we always joke that mountain range, you know, is one of many mountain ranges, you know, in the United States. And it ranges 550 miles from, you know, southern Pennsylvania to northern Georgia. And we just use that as an example. You know, people like to go to the mountains. Some people don't like to go to the mountains. Some people like to go to the river. Some people like to go to a lake and sit and watch a lake. Um, you know, maybe they like to fish in the lake. Some people like to go to wineries, you know, and get away and go spend a weekend with proximity to some wineries. So just some unique major geographical um, draw is, is one thing that really helps in locating a short-term rental investment property. So you want to look for something that's somewhere that's a draw. Um, do you want to look for something that's more of a distressed property that you're going to, you know, fix back up or, you know, what kind of yeah. houses are you looking at when you get them? So, yeah, the first part of that question, you can always just do, you know, things to do in, you know, we just said Tennessee, we keep using the Tennessee example, you know, best, best things to do in Tennessee, best 10, you know, weekend getaways in Tennessee. And that'll, that'll pop up, uh, you know, eight or 10 places that might be of interest to you. Let's say you lived in Tennessee. Um, the next part of that is I like to find properties that aren't necessarily distressed, but have not necessarily been used as a rental property in the past or vacation rental property in the past. Let me explain. So if you buy a place at the beach, the house is being priced with beach rentals baked into the price. If you buy a lake house from a family that has had that lake house in their family for 15 years and now they're just not using it, well, it's not that the property is distressed, but by changing, there's an arbitrage from changing the use case from a weekend family getaway to a full occupancy, you know, uh, cash flowing short-term rental property. And so then you come in, you make sure that it's all set up. Um, how right. do then we do have to get rid of the dead, dead, dead animals and doilies and, you know, repaint and, you know, freshen things up, but it's not necessarily, I wouldn't quite say distressed property, maybe some, um, you know, deferred maintenance, maybe it needs to be sort of brought onto standard instead of a lot of people's you've, you've probably been to friends houses you know it's in where the cabin or the lake house is the place where everything you know where the couch goes where it wears out its usefulness at home right so we want to update that type of stuff mm, that's an important point so you want it to be nice or new what would you say as far as furniture goes we, we like to say with ours, we want them to look rustic cabin on the outside and crate and barrel on the inside. You know, we're competing with the big brand hotels and we need to provide that type of big brand hotel decor. So you've got the place, you got it all set up. Um, but, you know, I mean, if you go on Airbnb, there's thousands, millions of places, mm -hmm. you know, how do you make yourself stand above the others so that people pick you? And that's how we got to writing the book, Host Coach, um, was we learned, you know, there's the, lots of processes and systems that separate the, you know, host who just takes some pictures and puts up a listing versus, you know, uh, following a process of, you know, documenting how do we automate pricing, how do we automate guest operations, how do we use um, digital photography and professional photography to, um, to differentiate, you know, Airbnb and VRBO are search engines, just like, just like Google. So if you know how to play the game, you can win the game. So if you know how to, you know, make the right policy decisions, pricing decisions, you can get your listing shown at the top of the search results. So what is the number one thing? I mean, person needs to get the book in order to learn all of that. But yeah. what's the number one thing that at least comes to mind right now that people should do that they usually don't when they start? Yep. You know, it's real easy. That? It's keep it full. Keep it full. People get hung up 
that my 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 place should be worth X dollars per night, say three hundred dollars per night, and they just set a flat line price like that. And sometimes it books on the weekend, and sometimes they might get a couple of days during the weekday. But if we're going to put on our entrepreneur hats, we know we can only make money when this asset is being leased out, you know, it's being rented. So we must look at it with that lens to price it such and to be automating our pricing. We can change our price. There's tools that we use. The one that we recommend is called Price Labs. It works kind of like how airlines set pricing based on supply and demand to make sure that you're adjusting your pricing to keep that asset full uh, you know, fully deployed and fully rented. And that's, that's, there's one thing to take away, keep it full by adjusting your price, uh, what we call price per occupancy. And is that tool something that kind of helps you automate that process or are you? Yes. You know, okay. So Price Labs gets its data from uh, Airbnb and it knows, it's kind of spooky, Steve. It, it knows literally how many people are searching for a property of your type in your area at any given time, what the exact you know, supply in, in the area is, how that compares to historical trends. And it takes all those things into consideration against a base price that you provide. And then it marks that up or marks that down um, for you uh, so that your pricing is you know, in sync with the exact supply and demand in the market. So we've got our pricing in line so that we can keep it full all the time. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't look at the other side of that. How do you teach in the book? You don't have to necessarily tell us how if you teach it in the book. How do we know how much we have to get per night so that we're not just keeping it full but losing money for having done it? Mm -hmm. That's a pretty simple calculation. it's not one that comes into play real often, but, you know, um, you know, we would simply take, you know, our, our entire, you know, expense side, you know, our mortgage and cleaning fees and utilities, and we could add those up and divide them by, uh, you know, the month, 30 days, right? So, but that's not a calculation that comes into play very often um, because the short, you know, let's just think it through real quick. So if it was say a hundred dollars a night, 30 nights, that's $3,000. You know, you look at a typical mortgage on a property like this at $1,500, and then let's just real quick napkin math, another $500 in miscellaneous expenses. You know, you're grossing from that gross of $3,000, less expenses of $2,000, you're netting, say, $1,000 in net operating income. Um, Quick napkin math, but you can very uh, easily see that we're not really... uh, the short-term rentals are, are in such high demand that they're cash flowing. We're not really having to do deep, deep analysis on, on cash flow the way we would on, say, a long-term rental hold. And so, as you mentioned, your book is called Host Coach. Um, give us a little overview of what people will learn when they get the book. Yeah, it's uh, it's really what we went through. So my wife and I uh, work on this business together, and we wanted to document we had uh, helped a number of friends and family and then started coaching and we wanted to put it all in one place. Everything from, is this business right for you? Are you passionate about it? What are the skills going to be involved? How do you locate a property um, that would be good for short-term rental, evaluate that deal? And then literally everything soup to nuts uh, from exactly what we do on our properties. So our nine properties will do, you know, close to a million gross this year. And it is exactly what I would tell, you know, my mom or my sister or my best friend, because that's what I did. And we turned that all into a book that will take you, um, the reader, through everything they want to know from exactly how we do it. And they can get the book by going to Amazon? Amazon, host coach. All right. And then beyond the book, do you also have other programs for people or is it just the book at this point? Uh, well, the book actually was born out of coaching, so we um, it's really what I like to do because everybody's needs are so different, Steve. You know, somebody might say, I want to buy you know, a really big beach house, and I just want to help cover the mortgage, right? Or somebody might say, you know, I want to get as many of these in cash flow as hard as possible, as fast as possible. Um, so I really like the coaching uh, where I can get to know people and their family and their needs and their goals. 
and help them through the decisions and you know help them navigate uh, you know the obstacles from where they are to where they want to be through the you know Airbnb ecosystem. Perfect. So, I offer coaching. So, how would the a person that wants your help? How would they get in contact with you? Yep, the website is uh, hostcoach.co. You can get on my calendar there for a 20 minute, you know, usually turns into 20, 30 minutes, you know, kind of get to know you call and see if we can um, help each other out. Well, contact Colin, uh, get the book host coach and uh, you know, you'll be glad that you did. Colin, thanks so much for spending some time with us here on the show today. Hey, Steve, it was my pleasure. Thank you. What does it mean to be the best version of yourself? What does it mean to be emotionally intelligent, to use the skills that we've talked about in this show and live as a thriving entrepreneur? What does that really mean? And I think sometimes we don't realize that all it really takes to thrive is to be the best you that you can be while it's called today. Tomorrow's going to take care of itself and yesterday, well, it's gone. We can't do anything about it. Well, what we can do is really, truly, fully, impactfully be who we can be today to, yes, absolutely apologize for anything that may have happened yesterday so that we don't bring it into today. But then also, more importantly than that, release ourselves from the burden of carrying yesterday into today and allow ourselves to really know who we are, know what we're good at. You know, true humility is a right perspective of yourself. It's being able to say not only the things that you struggle with, but also, hey, you know, I'm really good at that kind of thing. And to say it just you know, casually, you don't have to brag about it. Actually, bragging is another, it's the opposite side of the coin of, of self-esteem issues. But when we can just simply be humble and we can say, you know what, I'm actually really good at this particular thing. That's true humility. And when we bring that in, that's a certain level of emotional intelligence that really helps us in this knowing ourselves. And then we put skills like negotiating like a CEO and learning how to invest in real estate in the different ways. And we can bring all that stuff to the table and we can show up today. We can maximize today. We can be all that we can be right here, right now, because we know ourselves and we're being the best version of ourselves while it's called today. You know, we really need that because you are uniquely brilliant. You were created for a purpose and the world does need you. I hope you know that, you understand it, you see it, you feel it deep within the core of yourself, just how amazingly important you are to this world, and that you then show up knowing who you are, in true humility, being the best you that you are, and really making a difference in this world that only you can make. More than anything, that's the best way I can think of to live as a thriving entrepreneur. I want that for you. I hope you live in it. Thanks so much for joining me today. And until we're together again next time, have a great week. Thanks for listening to Thriving Entrepreneur today. If you want to get your question answered, send an email to questions at wehelpyouthrive.com. We look forward to you joining us again next time. who's on a mission stand out with your brand out <laughs> check this out guys yep everything's marketing and marketing is everything your existing book can become a best-selling book or even hey like mine a number one international best-selling book in five days listen if your business isn't known by everybody it's obscurity and that's death right the same thing is true for your book if you're not happy with the way your book is performing you got that far and then it just fell off the face of the planet kind of feeling Go to yourbestsellertoday.com, schedule a talk with Steve,
believe. It's risk-free. It's guaranteed. It's proven. We've done it thousands of times. What are you waiting for? Yes, yourbestsellertoday.com. This time next week, you could have a beautiful seal on your book and get the attention that you deserve. Reach the people that you came to serve. Come on now. What are you waiting for? Grab a pen. Here we go. All you got to do is book a call, yourbestsellertoday.com. Go to yourbestsellertoday.com. Book a talk with Steve. It's proven. It's guaranteed. It's going to happen. All you have to do is say yes to your destiny. You are-